Okay. Um, so, I, I may be a bit optimistic with the title, an apocalyptic discussion that won't end in a fight. Um, I, I hope I'm not optimistic. Um, but we'll, we'll see. Um, we started this a couple of weeks ago before the member meeting. Uh, Lucas, I don't know. I didn't turn on the recording. Is the recording on? It's on. Okay, good. You, you're, you're, see, you're a man of the people. You're, you're, a, you're a solidarity brother. Okay, uh, so uh, we, we started a discussion on, um, on closing out the book of Isaiah a couple of weeks ago. Member meeting was last week, so we didn't meet. So we're going to finish what we started a couple of weeks ago. Now, what I want to do is review what we did a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to make you fill in the blanks again, okay? So you're welcome. I didn't do that to you. Uh, but we're going to go back through some of those concepts. I'm going to go a little bit quicker just to be sure that we're on the same page before we get into uh, the a little bit more difficult stuff that we're going to talk about uh, at the end. And then you'll have to fill in the blanks. And so I just want to remind you what we, what we talked through. The main thing that we were concerned with was how we understand images that are presented to us in the Bible, particularly images in poetry. So poetry comes up, and, and you can kind of more or less ignore the slides for at least the time being, because you already have this, and it's on your packet in front of you. Um, but, but images are presented to us in the Bible frequently, and they often come to us in poetry, but they're not exclusively in poetry. Sometimes they come to us in prose. So I gave the example um, a couple of weeks ago of John the Baptist standing in the River Jordan, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he's pointing, of course, to Christ. That is an example of an image that's presented in prose, actually. It's, it's, it's a time when a character, or in this case, John the Baptist, is speaking, and he speaks in an image or a metaphor um, that we understand to be Jesus. We know that that's Jesus, and we intuitively interpret that image Right on the fly, without a moment's hesitation, we say, obviously, he's speaking about Jesus. And inside that little phrase, behold the Lamb of God, we, there's so much theological baggage that's just sort of hooked on to that phrase, right? We know Lamb of God. We're thinking uh, Old Testament, sacrifices, placed on the altar, uh, propitiation for our sins. We're thinking so many things in that short and sweet little phrase, and everybody there is doing the same thing. Nobody look, nobody's looking over there expecting to see a little lamb on the, on the banks of the river. And so these are examples of images, but these images come to us in a lot of other forms too. So we see these frequently in Hebrew poetry. You start reading Hebrew poetry, and you're, you're, the author will, will talk about a place you've never heard of, and so you get kind of lost in that. You're like, Where is, what are you talking about? Then you, he starts talking about livestock, cows of Bashan, and you're like, uh, I don't know what the cows of Bashan are. And then he floats right into an image that is very difficult to understand, and your inclination is to take the image on the surface, as the surface meaning. And that's problematic. And you think to yourself, all those times Bible teachers told me forever and ever, we want to take the Bible literally, Right? And, and to be honest with you, anytime you hear one of those liberal preachers get up there and they say, oh, this is figurative. This is, this, the meaning here is figurative. Especially when they're talking about something like creation. You know, ah, that's all 
that's all figurative. It's squishy language. And what do they use the figurative word for? Well, they, they use it to kind of get out of God creating the world out of nothing, right? And, and it's sort of this little side move that they kind of play with the reading of the Bible. And so when you hear somebody say, well, this is figurative language, you kind of go, wait a minute. I remember that liberal preacher up there that said figurative language when he was talking about Genesis 1, he was trying to get out of God created the world. Now this preacher's doing the same thing, all right? We want to avoid all that, okay? What we, what we want to do, if I said we, we don't strictly want to read the Bible literally, everybody would go, <gasps> right? What we want to do is read the Bible as the author intended it to be read, right? Every passage. So you're going to find the vast majority of prose, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. There's no indication in Genesis 1 and 2 that you're supposed to read that figuratively. Every indication, every pointer in the text is all saying, this happened. This is a recording of an event that took place in history, and you need to read it like that. But when you get to things like Isaiah, some poetry in Isaiah, Isaiah's going to use events and images that he's not meaning you to read on the surface. He's meaning for you to understand what he's talking about underneath it. An image. Okay, so what we decided was, or what I said was, that, that imagery really is one thing that represents another thing. The, the meaning is not in the surface, it's in what's underneath the surface. And it has a literal meaning. Like, you have to get down through the image, do the work of understanding what they're talking about in the image to get to what is being meant underneath the image, what the image is actually pointing to. So, where like, let's say our liberal pastor friend over here, he's way over here, all right, gives you this image and says, oh, th this is just a, a, an image for creation or whatever, Typically, he's trying to get around something, but images in the Bible point to a reality. They're used to make a very clear and cogent point about something. Could be the culture around them, could be judgment that's coming, could be a number of different particulars that they're pointing out. But, it, but the point is, it's, it's one thing that represents another thing. And you, the point is, you've got to get to that other thing. What is that that he's pointing to? And so we call that figurative language or imagistic language. And our, our intention is to see both the literal and the symbolic meaning underneath it. Now, the best way that I, I've, I've found to try to communicate this, again, if you weren't here a couple weeks ago, I'm just going to give you the same warning. Don't shoot me, okay, for what I'm about to show you. But just, and, and don't take it too far, you remember? You remember what I'm about to show you. Don't take it too far, those of you that are here. We do this all the time, all right? Hold on. I want to be clear. I am not making a political point tonight at all. I'm not trying to... This is just a, just a representation, all right? I, I, to be honest with you, I don't even know what the point the author... who the author was and what point he was necessarily coming from, but you get the idea, okay? So here's the, uh, here's the image, all right? that's being presented to you. Uh, there's an aspirin tablet that looks like a big stone, a massive stone right here in the middle, and it says Obamacare on it. And then you've got a donkey 
pushing on one end, saying, roll it out. And then you've got an elephant on the other end that's saying, roll it back. And underneath the pill, you've got, who is this? What is this? Mr. Citizen. So it's everybody else, right? Now, the, the point of this is not to say, what's your political feelings about all of this? Not at all. The point is, when you look at a political cartoon like this, you immediately interpret it, don't you? You, you already know exactly what it's saying. You've got uh, an elephant over here, which is? Republicans. You've got a donkey over here, which is? Democrats. You've got a, a person under here, which represents? All of us. You got a tablet up here, which represents Obamacare, and then there's also some health care in general that's coming along with it, right? And 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 Obamacare is is kind of stamped on the health care. This is sort of government taking over health care. All right. So you immediate you see that and you immediately understand it and interpret it. This is how apocalyptic literature functions in the Bible. As we, when we read apocalyptic literature, is there, when, you, when I show you that political cartoon, is there a point that's being made? What if I said about that political cartoon, oh, it's just figurative? Well, it would be quite fair. It, it is a figure, it is an image. But when I say figurative, that doesn't mean that there's not a meaning, there's an actual meaning that's behind that image. The meaning is just not. A donkey pushing a stone tablet and an Repub- and a, and a elephant pushing it the other direction. Has nothing to do with donkeys or elephants, actually, at all. Has, has, has nothing to do with an actual aspirin tablet at all. It has everything to do with the larger conversation about health care and the war that's being raged between Republicans and Democrats. And it's making a real point, and you understand what it is. Now, what if I said, what if I started giving you a squishy interpretation of what that meant? What if I said, oh, the donkey's not talking about Democrats, it's talking about something else. You would go, no, that can't be, because the donkey represents a Democrat and the elephant represents a Republican. So it actually has a physical meaning. You just have to figure out what he's talking about and get behind it to see what it means. The apocalyptic literature in the Bible functions this way, and it functions this way for a purpose. The design of it is to communicate a really hard-hitting point in very little space, right? You get that image really fast, and there's so much that you could spend time you could spend talking about what that actually means. So, when it comes to interpreting these passages, how do we get to the actual meaning behind the image? Well, that's where context comes into play. You have to open your eyes. If you don't open your eyes and take very seriously what's happening around it in the passage, you're going to be, to use one of my phrases I learned growing up from my parents, lost as a goose in a snowstorm. All right? You get me? You get my meaning? Lost as a goose in a snowstorm? Geese aren't supposed to be in snowstorms. And if you do find one, he's lost. All right? So, (laughs) yeah, we're dead. Uh, yeah, so and if it's a white goose, he's really lost. Uh, all right, so y- if you don't pay attention to the context of the passage, if you don't use all of your, you know, going back to third grade uh, literature, all your context clues to determine what he's meaning here, you are going to be really lost. 
Now, here, here's, part of the, here's part of the rub, and here's, here's part of the where it gets really difficult. Really difficult. Really, really difficult. Is that a lot of authors in the Bible expect you to have read the book, all right? Which is unfair of them to have expected me to actually read this thing in order to understand what they're talking about. Because sometimes they just drop in references that come from the Old Testament. I'll show you one in a little bit that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And, and, and that seems really unfair, right? But a lot of times, what people like Isaiah or, or some of the Old Testament writers are doing are using things that are really important to the culture to kind of give that depiction. We, we talked about one a few weeks ago where Isaiah uses uh, O'Day Star. And, and that's a, we talked about how the, it's a cultural reference and, and all of this kind of stuff. And, and, and he just sort of floats that in there and expects you to understand the culture. Well, when you get to the New Testament, they start to change the game a little bit, where the authors start to actually just drop in phrases from the Old Testament. It's not about culture anymore, now it's about the Old Testament. When you get to Revelation, almost every line in the book is a reference back to some place in the Old Testament. So it gets really challenging then, because you read it in Revelation, and you're like, well, he's just, that's what he means. But actually, that's a hyperlink that goes all the way back to some place in the Old Testament, and you track that down, and then you start to understand what John is actually saying. So all of his apocalyptic literature, his language, his political cartoons, if you will, they, they're not referencing culture that you have to dig back in to understand. They're referencing parts of the Bible that you have to know, like the back of your hand. You have to understand it and, and work inside. So it makes it challenging, right? It makes it really difficult. All right, so context is a, is, is a big is a big thing we've got to pay attention to. And so we get some of this language. We saw, uh, we looked at Isaiah 13.10, where um, Isaiah is presenting this language that's very similar to what we, what we hear is apocalyptic language. We hear when he, says, when he says things like the stars and the sun and the moon stopping, uh, ceasing to shine, and we see, we see images like that, our mind immediately goes to future. Our mind immediately goes to, well, there's bound to be a day where the sun stops shining and the, the moon stops giving its light and the, sun, uh, the stars uh, stop giving their light. And so our mind immediately goes to the end of time. But what we see in the context of Isaiah 13 is that he's actually talking about the judgment that's coming to Babylon. And he never deviates from that. He says, here's what's going to happen, Babylon, is the sun is going to stop shining for you. The, the moon is going to cease to give its light. The stars you know, are not going to give their light either. And what we come to realize is that that whole thing is about the nation of Babylon collapsing. And so the, the stars, the, the celestial bodies, ceasing to give their light, there's actually about three other more complicated meanings, but the surface meaning, at least, for our purposes tonight, is, is pretty plain. Your, your world is coming to an end. It's going to collapse like a dying star. Your, your lights are going to be knocked out. You're not going to be able to function anymore. And the, the point that we take away from that is that there is a severity of judgment coming to them that's going to wipe them off the map entirely. And that's exactly what the Lord does. He wipes them off the map. And then he comes back to this same language in chapter 34. So in chapter 34, 
he gives this similar kind of language about the clouds rolling up like a scroll, the leaves falling from the vine, and um, different kinds of images. Again, we start thinking about the end of time, and he tells us that his referent is Edom. He points out Edom squarely in 34, that, it's, that Edom is going to be judged. And so, what that does for us, it actually helps us a good bit. Because what we start to see is that there's a pattern emerging for how the Old Testament prophets communicate the collapse of a kingdom. And how do they do it? Well, they use cosmological imagery to give to you the meaning of the collapse of this kingdom. Now, that's particularly important uh, for a number, number of reasons, but first, we start to see this pattern kind of developing over time, and it, and it helps us to kind of see what's being meant here. It's used several other times, Ezekiel 32, 7, Joel 2, 10, 31, 3, 15, um, to name a few. But then when we get into the, the New Testament, well, here, Jesus is just going to drop it on us, and he says in Matthew 24, 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, what, what you realize when you read Isaiah is that Jesus has just dropped a quote from Isaiah right in the middle of everything that he was saying. And everything that he's talking about in the context of Matthew 24, the first 36 verses, is, uh, is all about the collapse of Jerusalem and how it's going to be destroyed. The temple, in particular, is going to be torn down brick by brick. He tells the disciples, not one stone is going to be left upon another. And so it causes them to ask when they leave the temple. They're walking out of the temple, and you have to understand, the bottom floor of the temple, well, there wasn't like an elevator or anything like that, but you get it, you're on ground level in the temple. You walk up next to these stones, and they're... The, the base stones are over your head from, the, from, the, from where you're standing. They're, they're over your head. One is, I think it's 52 feet long, and they don't even know how deep it is, but it's many feet deep. This thing is hundreds of tons, this stone is, that's laying here. So you can imagine when they're walking out of the temple, the disciples are t telling Jesus, Look how impressive this thing is. Jesus has just pronounced woes on Jerusalem in chapter 23. You're going to all be destroyed. And the disciples are going, have you seen this place? Look how, look how massive this is. I can't, I can't imagine somebody just coming in and mopping the floor with Jerusalem. I mean, with this temple. And Jesus says, not one stone is going to be left on top of another. So he's telling them, look, this, this thing is going to be obliterated. Well, when you pick up the language from the Old Testament of this cosmological imagery bringing about the collapse of a kingdom, Jesus having just pronounced the collapse of the Jewish religious system, the kingdom of the Jews, then coming into 24, giving details of how this is going to happen. Look, Judea is going to be ransacked. If you're in Judea, you need to run for the hills when all of these things happen. We learned from uh, Luke 
who's writing to a bunch of Gentiles. He's talking about the surrounding of Jerusalem by pagan armies, the Roman armies coming in and surrounding Jerusalem, leaving not one stone left on another there in, in the temple that it's going to be destroyed. He's telling them, get out and leave. And so when he drops this image of the sun not giving its light and all of these kinds of things right there in the middle of everything, he's not looking into the future past 70 A.D., going all the way into our future. He's not looking there. He's looking at 70 A.D., and he's telling them, this is going to happen to you. But he's not just looking at 70 A.D. either. He's looking at what initiates 70 A.D., the collapse of the temple, in his crucifixion and resurrection. And he tells Caiaphas this. Hey, Caiaphas, I am the Son of God. And from now on, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. You, Caiaphas, are going to see it. And he tells the disciples, this generation will not pass until these things come to be. And so a lot of people get to that phrase and they're like, wait a second. Stars not giving their light. Clouds. Sun not giving its light. That's got to be our future. So when he says this generation not coming to pass, well, surely he means something funny here. No, that's not an image. He's not giving you any clues that that's an image. The Old Testament gives us all the clues that the cosmological imagery that he just used is an image. What is it an image of? What he's just told you in the context. Jerusalem is going to collapse. That's what it's an image of. So does it have a meaning? Yes, it has a meaning. But the meaning is not on the surface, it's just underneath that. What doesn't have, what isn't an image, what isn't a political cartoon, is this generation is going to pass. That's, that's literal, it's right there in the Bible. He says it, and he means it. 70 AD, this generation is not going to pass. Okay, you, you starting to get it? You starting to kind of see how the Bible will float in and out of this language sometimes, and you got to really be on your toes to understand it. But then we get to Revelation 6 and Revelation 8. Now, in, in Revelation 6 and 8, or just Revelation in general, John is now coming to the end, thinking about the end of all things, all right? Thinking about how the whole uh, age that we're in is going to be consummated, how it's all going to come to a close. And he's using all the imagery from the Old Testament that represents the collapse of individual kingdoms, Babylon, Edom, a host of other kingdoms. Except now, he's not talking about a singular kingdom, Babylon. He's talking about the global kingdom, what we're living in now. All earthly governments. And he's later, in the end of the book, going to represent all those earthly governments by the name of one kingdom. What is it? Babylon. He's going to represent all of that with the same language that Isaiah used. He's going to bring it to the, Old, the, the New Testament, and he's going to say what Isaiah said about Babylon is true about all Babylon. Babylon is a type of everything to come. Okay, so in Revelation 6, 12 and 8, 12, listen to how he says this. Where am I? Revelation 6, 12 and 8, 12. When he opened up the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. Full moon, the full moon became like blood. Then 8.12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. So the third 
of their light might be darkened, a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, my intention is not to get into inter interpretation of Revelation, because that's not where we're at right now. There's a lot of complexity there, and we're not going to really touch that. But what we do want to say is, at the very least, we can all agree, John is looking forward at the collapse of the earthly kingdom, and he's bringing in all that imagery from the Old Testament and presenting it there. Now, the difficulty with Revelation is that he's, it's a book of, filled with image, <laughs> which makes it really hard, right? <laughs> makes it extra challenging. Um, but, point is, I just wanted to give an example of how he's doing this. Now, the Old Testament does this quite frequently. Um, in fact, the New Testament then will reference the Old Testament in these ways. And sometimes the reference that we think uh, a, a passage may mean in the Old Testament is not actually what the New Testament says about that passage. I, I'll give you an example. Let's look at Joel uh, 2, 28 to 32. And I, I, I cannot remember. Tell me, did I include that in your packet? If I didn't, shame on me. I had two opportunities and I didn't do it. Joel 2. Did I? No, Joel 2, 28 to 32. All right. Joel 2, 28 to 32, says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And you look at that and you read that and, and, and maybe you're well versed in the New Testament. You go, no, I know what he's talking about. But if you're not, you read that and you're like, you're thinking, I, son, he says here, sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Well, then Peter gets to preaching. And he goes back and he decides to exegete Joel 2, 28 to 32. And he says this in, in Acts 2. I know I included this one in your packet. Acts 2, 14 to 21. Peter, and you know, when, when is this? When is this? That he's preaching. Time period? Somebody tell me. At Pentecost. All right? Jesus, gone. Holy Spirit, present. All right? That's our roll call. All right? But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So here, here's the context that's happening. People in Jerusalem are there for the Feast of Pentecost. And the Spirit has descended on some people. And people are preaching or speaking, and even though they're from another country and they speak another language, and they're here for the festival, they can understand what's being spoken as if it's spoken in their own language. Holy Spirit is doing some uh, Google Translate for them right there on the fly. And, um, and so Peter, they, they all assume, oh, what, what is it? Oh, people are drunk, right? That's what people are saying. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. 
Let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. I mean, it's 11, 12 o'clock in the morning. Not 11 o'clock in the morning. Um, but this, was, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This, Pentecost. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, oh, I would be good if he just stopped there. He, he didn't. He said, And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of, of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Wow. See, Peter is inaugurating, well, Jesus actually inaugurated, Peter is demonstrating through the power of the Spirit what's happening. There's a transition taking place between the Jewish age that has met its end, ultimately will collapse in 70 AD, and the rise of the church age that's coming up underneath it. And the collapse of one kingdom and the ushering in of a new he says, is the fulfillment of what Joel was speaking of. That's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. What's even harder to wrap our minds around is that what Jesus ushered in with his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his second coming is the end of days. One long age that we don't know how long it will go on. We may be, for all we know, we may be in the early church. You know that? I just think about that for a second. You might be sitting in the early church. Wrap your minds around that for just a second. In the year 64,000 AD, you might have a kid in grade school learning his Bible, going, I, I never can get him straight. Which one came first, Augustine or C.S. Lewis? Who, who, which, I can't keep it straight. Because for him, they're all in the age of yesteryear, right? You might, we think, every generation thinks they're in the end times. But you might be in the early church, right? Um, and that, that's, that's very real. Well, Peter says, look, this age is ushered in by the collapse of one kingdom that Jesus brought about. It's, it's no longer necessary and the ushering in of a new kingdom. And what is the sign that this kingdom is coming to fruition? Well, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. I'm going to, my, your, your sons and daughters will dream dreams and they'll prophesy. Sun will be darkened. Moon will not give its light. So, that happens at Pentecost. Peter says it's fulfilled at Pentecost. Um, Everybody got that Pentecost? I didn't change it until late, so I'm sorry. Um, Revelation gives us the same picture, but instead of the, this is what I was saying earlier, but instead of the referent, instead of what they're calling back to, being a particular nation like you see so often in the, New, in the Old Testament, the, 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 the 
uh, referent that's being focused on in Revelation is the entire unbelieving world in total is, is in view. And so John's giving a picture of, of now it all and how it's like so many things that have come before it. It's like the collapse of so many nations that have come before it, except this time it is the end of all things. Now, so, so we have these images, and so we're, we're, we're kind of learning how to... That's what we want. That's all what we're trying to do. We're trying to just be better Bible readers. That's, that's really it. Open our eyes, see the context clues, take them seriously, and, and develop them and help understand what the, what's actually being meant. So then... Um, we, when we seek to understand that, we have to ask ourselves, as it pertains to the book of Isaiah in particular, all that was introduction, okay? Um, <laughs> so, I'm just kidding, kind of. Um, we have to understand, what is Isaiah as a book? What is he heading towards? What, what, is, his, what is his goal? What, what is the ultimate outcome that he is wanting to depict for you? What does that future look like? Well, he's going to use some terms that we need to really get familiar with, all right? One term that he's going to use is the new earth. And he does this in Isaiah 65, and he starts it in verse 17. Look at Isaiah 65, 17. It's in your outline. Um, he says, For behold, I create... New heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What, what has he just done? What, what, what point in human history are we at at this point in Isaiah? Where we are, we know now. Isaiah doesn't have the lights on yet, he's in the same room we are with the same furniture. Just He's in the dark, all right, about some of it. Like, he doesn't have the lights on. Jesus comes, dies on the cross, resurrects, third day rises again, tells us he's coming back, turns on the lights as he leaves. And we're like, look at this furniture, right? We, kinda under, we start to understand what the room looks like now in light of Jesus, okay? So, uh, so what is he talking about, this new earth? This is what we know now. Jesus returns and establishes a one-world government. I don't mean that in a negative sense. It's a very positive thing, right? A one-world government with Jesus as king. We are in resurrected bodies. We are living on a place very much like this, except in, I think, I think probably this, a redeemed this. Uh, no sin whatsoever, and we are dwelling in the kingdom of Christ uh, forever. And, and how do we know that? Well, Isaiah uses another term in chapter 25, verses 8 to 9. Now, he, he doesn't get to the new earth thing yet, but he just says, um, he says in 25, 8 to 9, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. 
This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So, so we know that we're more familiar with that term right there. Wipe away tears from faces. Death will be gone forever. This is depicting the same age. Now, he doesn't say new earth here. But he says, he gives us some clues as to what that timeline will be like. All right? Okay, so now is where it gets really tricky. It gets really difficult. And I don't like it when it gets difficult because then you start yelling at me. But it, let's remember the context. What is the context of Isaiah 65, particularly in verse 17? What is it? New heavens and new earth. But you'll notice when we get to 65.20, this is where it gets hard, and I don't like it when it gets hard. He says, no more, we're talking about new heavens and new earth, remember? Death will be wiped away, he said in 25. Tears from all faces. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives only lives but a few days. Hey, so far so good, I like this. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. Okay, so far I like this. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. What? And the sinner, a uh, uh, hundred years old, shall be accursed? Uh, well, wait a minute. Where are we? Now, some people want to just, just expand that out to be like this massive theological movement that he's made. He's not. He says very clearly in 17, the timeline of this is new heavens and new earth. Now, I know what you might be thinking. If you're tracking with me, you might go, well, wait a minute. Maybe new heavens and new earth and death wiped away are not the same thing, right? Maybe, just maybe, those are two different things that he's talking about here. And new heavens and new earth is something totally different, some sort of, I don't know, intermediate type deal where death is just kind of stretched out or life is just sort of stretched out a little bit. The New Testament's not going to let you get away with that interpretation at all. John's going to link these two things together, which makes it really hard for us to figure out what he's saying. Um, but we'll get to John in just a second. What he's saying, I, I think, is that there's not going to be any more untimely death. What, what, is, what, what, what is the travesty of this world? Char Charlie presented a prayer request earlier about his cousin that had passed away. And his cousin, he said, was a believer. And a lot of people who have believers that have passed away in their family, they say, it's not a funeral, it's a celebration. Right? You hear that? It's not a funeral, it's a celebration. The Bible will not let you say that. You understand that? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it's not until Christ comes back that it becomes a celebration. Then, when Christ returns and there's a resurrection of our dead bodies from the grave, that death will be robbed of its victory. It's at that point that death is robbed of its victory. Not before. Now, it's robbed of its victory in Christ. And as we saw in Matthew, a few lucky other ones who are also resurrected. We can talk about that at some other time. But... He says, when Christ returns, then death will be robbed of its victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Right now, there is a sting, and the casket is the sting, right? But 
death in the new earth will be no more. And the greatest symbol of death that we could possibly think of in our world right now is a baby that dies in infancy. Isn't it? Baby that's born, that's stillborn, miscarriage. I mean, who in here does not know, at least know someone who suffered miscarriage or death of a child? That is the, that typifies the worst things about this world. And what Isaiah, I think, is getting at, if we don't force him to be, read it right on the surface, if we say he is presenting an image, and what he's presenting an image of is untimely death. Those times where a person dies way before we think they should. He's saying, it's going to be gone. Now, the reason why, that, why, why the Bible forces us to give that interpretation is in Revelation 21, 1-4. Look at Revelation 21, 1-4. I, I don't want you to think that I'm just trying to be funny with the text. He says in, in 21, 1-4, Then I saw, what is it? New heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, by which he means a people, by the way, prepared as a bride adorned for her body, for her husband. See, told you. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with me. You see what he's doing? He's quoting Isaiah here. He's just, he's just in the language of Isaiah when he's saying this. Um, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away... Now he's gone in verse 4. He's gone from Isaiah 65. He's gone all the way back to Isaiah 25 now. And he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. So what is John doing here in 21? New heavens and new earth, Isaiah 65. Death will be no more. He'll wipe away all the tears from their faces. This, he says, is the same reality. It's one and the same. Same reality. Death is no more. That, that's, when you think of new heavens and new earth, Christ dwelling with us forever, death is wiped away entirely. So that forces us then to say in Isaiah, sometimes where there's places where you're like, that doesn't feel like an image. The Bible's telling you it is. And what he's saying is, death that is premature, that typifies the world you live in right now, will be no more. It's not going to happen. All right. Let me have it. All right. Go ahead. Question, Shannon. What happens when we die is the question. That's a great question. I love that question. Um, we actually talked about this in a small group on Sunday night. First um, <laughs> Corinthians 15 uh, helps us a ton. In fact, Paul helps us a lot when it comes to death. First of all, here's what we know for sure. Jesus is on the cross with the thief next to him, and he says to the thief, what? 
No, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So what do we take from that? Today, Jesus is in the grave. He's buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. What does he mean by that? Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, he obviously doesn't mean his body, right? So, Paul fills in the details. He says to be absent the body is to be present with the Lord in Corinthians. So we know that Paul is talking about the same reality that Christ is, is talking about. So what we see is that you die, your soul is separated from your body and goes to be with the Lord, right? Pause. That's where we stop. And we say, earth is not my home. I'm just passing through. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Well, that's true in as far as we've stopped at 1 Corinthians and we've stopped with Jesus on the cross. But that's not the end of it. That's not the end of the story. You could even say, heaven's not your home. You're passing through it too. All right? There is an intermediate state when we go, our souls go to be with the Lord and our bodies go into the grave and rot. Then there is a day where Christ returns, bringing all of those who have perished before, that have gone to be with Him, along with Him, and souls are met with resurrected bodies, and He starts, He inaugurates, or consummates the eternal kingdom on earth, the redeemed earth. Got it? No. When he says new earth, when he says new heavens and new earth, that's what he's talking about. Christ coming back, bringing souls with him, reunite with resurrected bodies that are changed in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we that believe with them will be resurrected second. Our bodies will be changed. We will live forever with Christ on new earth under a new heavens. And I think by that what he means is a purified sinless earth. So picture existence like unto what you have now, except no sin and Christ is king. Is that no? No, no. No, no. We're, we're, we're tracking. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Theological test number one, pass. All right, here we go. Hit me with another one. Come on. Yeah. Is, that's what they mean. Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? What's that? God's people. Israel has always been God's people. Israel will always be God's people. But who is Israel? Who is Israel? Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. We are his body. Yeah. There is one inheritor of the kingdom of God, and that is Christ. He did everything that would ever have been required of any citizen of Israel. He did it perfectly and as such inherited everything that was ever promised to anyone in all of Scripture. It is all Christ's. What can you point to 
in this world that you say, Christ didn't get that. That piece of land, oh, Christ didn't get that. Nothing. He inherited everything as the perfect Jew. Anyone who is in Christ inherits those things along with him. Not because we do anything, but because Christ did it for us. Will you right now restore this kingdom? What does he say? Out for you to know. So what, when will it be restored? When he returns. Yeah, sin. Sin is covering the world, blanketing the world right now. You and I dwell in it. And all that we exist, all that we live in is in the midst of a world full of sin. And upon his return, all of that will be eradicated. And there will be one kingdom set up. That kingdom will be his. Yes! The kingdom that they should have inherited, that they should have possessed the earth with, that they were commanded to, and that they couldn't because of sin, he did it. So are you, Jesus, right now going to do this? Because you're the only one qualified to do it. We know that. The answer was, not for you to know. Well, it turns out the answer is no, not at this moment. But, kind of, yeah. In some sense, people are right now coming into that kingdom by being incorporated into his body. One day he'll return and restore all things. That's when the kingdom is consummated. Other Charlie. Yeah, I, I think what he's saying is, I think that is, again, I think that is an image that's repeated from the first couple of lines, that, which to me is clearer in the first couple of lines, an infant who no, no more shall be, be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. I think that that's an image for the same kind of thing that's being presented. He's kind of giving like three or four examples of what that means. And so I, I think what he's talking about there is the thing that you understand to typify the world that you live in being premature death, where infant mortality is, you know, 80% or so, whatever it is around them. That, that's not going to be anymore. And I think that same interpretation for, for the image applies to the young man um, that, uh, that dies 100 years old. Yeah, because you get... Yeah. Right. And you get to that, at the very end, you get to the, the, the thing, a sinner that's 100 years old is accursed. You're, you're caused to, to dwell in it. You know, for a sinner who's 100 years old, you're, you're, you're considered accursed. I think he's talking about the same reality there. That the, the sin will be eradicated, it's gone, that's not going to be there anymore. That's, that's not going to happen anymore. And so I, I, I think that's what the image is representing. And it's it, some, somewhat difficult, uh, I think, to kind of work through. 
probably a little bit easier in the original, but it's still difficult. That is definitely the dispensational interpretation of that passage, for sure. Uh, classic pre-mill, I, I, I don't know what like Ladd would say about that, um, but, but um, that, that's definitely a dispensational interpretation, which, no, I don't think, and, and here's the reason why, listen, it's not just because I want to try to be funny with verse 20, it's because if you go up to verse 17, he says, new heavens and new earth. That's governing how I view what happens after this. And then if I'm going to go, well, this is, some, this is some intermediate state here, both Isaiah 25 and Revelation 21 doesn't let me get away with that. Because it's sort of like a, a triangle with, if you can imagine, three people holding really tight lines. You can't relax one side without the whole triangle collapsing, right? Revelation 21, Isaiah 25... Isaiah 65 all have to be held together because John connects them all together. So how, how, how else are you going to do it? He says, new heavens and new earth in Isaiah 65 is death will be no more in Isaiah, Isaiah 25. Those are the same reality. And if they're the same reality, then that forces how we're understanding verse 20. We have to think, okay, well, what John is representing here He's putting an image up of what we understand to be the worst parts of the world, and behind that, the reality is, what he's saying is, death is going to be no more. The premature, and, and typified by that premature death, that you know, it, it's going to be wiped away. It's not going to happen anymore. It has to be how we end up interpreting the text. That only happens, though, because we, we have to be familiar with all the places where these are coming together, Right? Where are dispensationalists? Um, some of it comes from Revelation, uh, mention of a thousand-year reign. Um, the, the problem with that, I don't have a problem with a thousand-year reign. I, I, I think those are, you know, I, I may disagree with the interpretation, but I think those are, you know, arguable points, you know, debatable points, and we could probably talk about them all night. Um, the The Part that I have a problem with is when you come, when you take that from Revelation and you put it into this text here and see this text as defining what that thousand years will look like when there is no mention of that whatsoever. There's not a thousand nothing, you know, here that, that Isaiah is getting. But, but when you get to verse 20, people go, well, it has to be then because there still seems to be death, you know, or something. Because you're, you're interpreting the image and not going behind it and going, no, 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 the reality is back here. And that's admittedly very difficult, right? I, I, I get it. And, and I'm not criticizing anybody for any interpretation you might have. Just saying, let's, let's just look at the words that he says. And when he says new heavens and new earth, I don't know what you're supposed to do with that other than go, John, Isaiah 65, Isaiah 25, they have to all be talking about the same thing. And if they are, then this is what Isaiah means by that, not what it seems to 
say on the surface, right? So I think the important thing is don't take a theology and import it into the text and go, that's what this is talking about. Instead, let's look at the text and go, let's follow the clues there. There's not one theological position, not one, that I agree with top to bottom. Not one. Because we're governed by the Word itself. And I don't sweat it if you disagree with me, because we're going to go back to the Bible and go, well, how do you explain that? What do you do with that? What do you do with this? And the one that can explain it wins. That's as basic as it gets. Because it's the Word of God. You know, I'm not trying to play funny games at all. I'm trying to look at it seriously and go, these words actually mean something, and I'm governed by, by these other texts too, right? I can't just read it in isolation. I've got to read it in context. All right, let's end there. I'm sure there's thousands of conversations we could probably have, but let's pray. What's that? I have all, yeah, yeah. Again, Tom will make the clouds roll up like a scroll and the moon turn to blood. So let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for it tonight. We thank you for just the, the wherewithal to just be able to read the, the Bible um, in our language, something so few people have. And, um, and we certainly pray for them. We pray for more. But we, we covet the time that we have together to, to read your word, to take it seriously, to really think deeply about what it means and to let it drive instead of our interpretations or, or whatever, even my interpretation. But we, we want the word to drive, take front seat and, and govern the way we understand um, the text. So I pray that we would be able to do that. You, we need your help to be able to do that, your spirit to interpret for us. We pray that you would do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.